It is good to be with you, not just because I love you guys so much, but apparently Pastor Keith has a knack um, for, for, for bringing us in, it seems like, to kick off one of these scenes in this amazing saga of salvation that your wonderful pastor is bringing you all through. I, I just want to commend Pastor Keith first and foremost for being faithful to the prompting of God to endeavor to do such a thing. I mean, the, 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 the typical uh, attention span in America, you're lucky if you'll even get 20 minutes of what I'm going to say today. You know what I mean? Especially if your fantasy football roster isn't set when I gave you time to do it. But to, to, to say, I'm going to lead my church through a year-long series through the Bible. Not topical, how, 10 ways to be a better parent, you know what I mean? 16 ways to better love your wife. You know, 18 ways to make your husband a better sandwich, all that good, you know, preaching stuff. Ladies, the sandwiches are important. But to, to say we're going to not just walk through the word and hear from the word and let the word wash us and let the word edify us and let the word build us up and encourage us. But to do it in a way to show what every jot and tittle, what every period, paragraph, dotted I and cross T points to the salvation of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What an amazing undertaking. And so I get the distinct privilege to kick off this next leg of the journey, the next scene, if you will, in this saga of salvation, which uh, is called prophets and kings. Now, you guys have just come out of the period of the judges. So, so you guys have been journeying through, and, and if you remember from the book of the judges or if you've ever read it, you know that the book of Judges is a really turn-up kind of book. It's a real raggedy, ratchety, gully, any kind of urban colloquialism you want to use to describe grimy, dirty, cutthroat, murderous, nasty, degenerate world. That was the judges. And the Judges was a very difficult time in the history of Israel, not just because Israel constantly found itself being run roughshod over by lesser foreign powers, but because those foreign powers were given rights and privileges to run roughshod over Israel because Israel had rejected God, they had disobeyed God, then they fell into sin and idolatry. And so to give them a little time out and a spanking, God would raise up these foreign nations. How many of you know that God loves you no matter what, but any good parent who loves their child will discipline and spank and time out? Can somebody say amen? And so God would spank them with these foreign nations. And that's one of the cycles that you see through the book of Judges, right? Israel rebelled. They disobeyed. They fell away from the Lord. God raised up a nation. This nation started oppressing them and enslaving them. They got the point. How many of you know that discipline, not punishment, discipline is important to help us to get the point so that we don't keep going down the same road that gets us jacked up? So they, they get disciplined. They cry out to God. God would raise up a deliverer. There'd be peace for a while, and then it'd go back through that cycle. And so this was a really raggedy, raggedy time to be in. And that led into this new season 
of prophets and kings because God has a good plan for your life. How many of you know Jeremiah 20, 29, 13? For I know the plans that I have for you. 29, 11, I'm sorry. 29, 13 is another good one. I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. See, I, I always tell people this. You can have good plans. You're probably smarter than I am. You're probably more skillful, more capable than I am, and you probably got better plans than me. But see, the difference between a God plan and a man's plan is that a God plan prospers and doesn't harm. See, a man's plan, you can prosper. You can have the best idea on planet Earth and turn it into a multi-million dollar business. But if God is not the center of his word, if it's not based on him doing this in you and through you, then harm will come along with it. And so we see that God has this desire to have good things in the lives of his people, things that prosper and don't harm, a plan for a future. And so even though Israel lived in this rebellious time, I love it because there's several verses of Scripture I mentioned in the first service that really describe this time of the judges. One of them is in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, And another generation arose that knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So God gave them the promised land. Joshua and everyone went in. Joshua gave his famous speech. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And everyone was like, yeah, we're going to serve the Lord too. Well, you know what? The next generation said, forget this Lord crap. I don't know who this dude is, and they forgot who God was. They forgot what he had done for them. They forgot about the calling on their life. They forgot about the favor that was on them as God's chosen people, and they lived below their station. Another verse of Scripture, it's actually the last verse of the entire book of Judges, and it really sums up what was going on during that time and why God was transitioning them out of the period of Judges into this period of prophets and kings. And it says this, for in those days, there was no king in Israel. There was no leadership, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Some translations say everyone did as they saw fit. Boy, I tell you what, you want a you verse for our nation today. We don't got, we don't got no, everyone's their own king, and we do whatever we want to do. And then the third verse that really captures it, and it's part of this overlap, because the, the period of the judges overlaps into the period of the prophets and kings, and we see it actually in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, The word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. And you say, well, 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 what do those verses of Scripture have to do with this time? Well, it shows us something that's so important and why God is making this shift from tribal, local, judges that he has to raise up every so often to a new paradigm of leadership is because this this the old paradigm of leadership there was no influence of the word of God and there was no godly leadership and so now God is shifting his focus and rather than speaking to specific individuals at specific times God is actually going to raise up a tandem of leaders prophets and kings and see, the ultimate reason that God does this is because he, everything in the Old Testament, points us to Jesus. And this is foreshadowing and pointing to the fact that Jesus himself fulfills the three leadership offices of Israel, of prophet, priest, and king. But apart from that, God wants us to also see something that's impactful and important for our own lives. See, because these two new roles of leadership 
function in tandem, but in this tension where if you have too much of one and not enough of the other, there's an imbalance that comes, and the good godliness that God wants to bring through that doesn't happen. See, because how many of you know God wants his word in your life? God wants to speak to you. God wants to speak through you. He does that through godly leadership. He does that through his word. He does that through the Holy Spirit. And so that's the prophet end of it. But see, there's the other end of it, the king end of it, because how many of you know God wants structure in your life? God wants order in your life. You know the sign that they put on things that are broken and don't work? What does it say? This, this machine is out of order. And see, so many of our lives, and definitely so many times in the world, we see people's lives that are broken and malfunctioning because they're out of order. They're not lining up with the plan and the systems and the structure that God has for their life. One of the old sing-song things, remember this? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage. That is a prime example of one of the the reasons why our nation is out of order, because we got that out of order. If love ever comes, it's usually after the baby, hopefully, and maybe with no marriage. And that's not to mess anything up, because I'll tell you right now, I, got a ch- my, I have a 20-year-old son born out of wedlock. Yes, I got baby mama drama. Just It's real. The struggle's real, y'all. But see, I've seen how that has caused pain for my son and in my own life. And the funny thing about sin in Galatians chapter 6, tells us about this. Sin is the gift that keeps on giving. Because when we sow to the flesh, we reap from the flesh. And you always reap more than you sow. But see, there's also another principle that's at hand. When you sow to the Spirit, you reap from the Spirit. And you always reap more than you sow. And so even if you're here today and maybe you're reaping the harvest of some fleshly decisions, maybe you got some things out of order and it's throwing things out of whack in your life, you know what? Go ahead. Reap that harvest. It's yours. But here's what you can do. Start sowing to a good one right now. Start sowing to the Spirit right now. But we see this dynamic tension that God wants to lead our lives, not just his nation, not just his people Israel, but our lives with prophets and kings. Because here's the thing. If you have the prophetic, people running around and giving words, and God said this, and this is God told me to come and pray for you and put my sweaty hand on your forehead and shake you until you fall down. See, that's why you need some governance got to have some, some structure that comes in and says, well, bless the Lord. I do not want to quench the spirit, but you just can't do that here and right now. Amen? But then at the same time, if, if all you have is governance and systems and structures and you've got no prophetic, thus says the Lord, then really you've got no anointing on the system that you've built. Are you with me today? And that works for your life. You could have your 401K set. I'm going to have my 2.3 kids. I'm going to have this house, I'm going to pay this mortgage off, I'm going to work here, then I'm going to go into this job, I'm going to marry a person, and all of these other things. But if you don't have the thus says the Lord in the direction of the Word of God speaking into the systems and structures and order that you've built for your life, guess what? There's not going to be any favor on what you're doing, and you will reap what you sow. And so we have to have this balance, and that's what we begin to see as God is shifting the leadership paradigm in Israel from from judges and a priesthood to prophets and kings. And the first prophet-king combo that we see is Samuel and King Saul. Samuel and King Saul. 
Now, for those of you who aren't Bible scholars, uh, just a little backstory here to help you get up to speed on where we're going today. But, but, but Samuel was a man who was born from a miracle. He was a miracle baby. See, back in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we see his mama, Hannah, who's barren. She can't have kids. And back in the day, the only way a woman could have value and worth was by being able to produce as many kids as she could. And Hannah did not have this ability. And to make matters worse, Hannah's husband had another wife. They were polygamous back then. I'm not, just because it's in the Bible don't mean you should do it, okay? Don't lay a fleece just because Gideon did. He was testing the Lord. He wasn't showing faith. Just, that's free. I'm sprinkling that in for free. All right? Don't tell me you're laying a fleece. That's testing the Lord. Amen? And her husband's other wife, not only could she have kids, but she could have lots of kids. She had some childbearing hips. She was pushing them out rugged and all of these other things. And she would mock Hannah mercilessly. Now, I don't know what kind of teases you come up for someone that's struggling with something that's so bad, but I do know you got to be a pretty rotten person to tease somebody about having that issue. And so Hannah, and I love it because this is what God does in our lives. God will allow us to live and languish to a degree in lack to see if we'll get to a point where we will cry out to him so that he can provide what we're longing for. Sometimes he wants to see if we want it as much as he wants to give it. And so Hannah comes to this point, and they go up to, 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 to this festival where the temple, it's a tabernacle, and it's all beat up and no one cares because no one cares about God. It's still the time of the judges, and everybody's doing what they want to do. And she goes up to the, to the tabernacle there, and she starts crying out to God. And, I mean, she's praying so hard that the, that the semi-blind priest, Eli, who's sitting there, thinks she's drunk. And he actually comes to her. She's grieving. She's in distress. She's in despair. And this is what the minister does. He says, it's too early to be that drunk, lady. What are you crying like that for? She tells him how her womb has been closed. And then she she makes an oath to God. And she says, God, if you give me a son, I will bring this son back here next year. And I will dedicate him to your service. And he will serve you in your house all the rest of the days of his life. Be careful what you ask for. As God did exactly that, and that's how Samuel came into being. Now, some of us might think, like, wow, this is, this is a really cool calling to have on my life, man. I, I grow up because in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, that passage that I quoted where it says the word of the Lord was very rare and there wasn't very frequent visions, the next couple verses tell us how Samuel, as a young boy, growing up before the presence of the Lord, he has this amazing ability to hear from God and to have visions, and he has all of these amazing things that God is putting in him so that he can be a leader into this transition from judges to prophets and kings. But I want you to think about this for a second. Do you think Samuel might have had some issues? He gets to see his mom on holidays. I mean, imagine those conversations, those visitations. Hannah comes on up because every year it says she would go on up and she'd make him a new new outfit. And I don't know how heartbreaking that must have been for Hannah, but I know that it definitely didn't feel good to Samuel, especially being someone who had a parent that he never really saw. And so here he is growing up in this, 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 this great calling, but with all of these insecurities inside of him. All of these, I mean, I mean, 
can God really care about me if my mama don't want me? You think that didn't cross his mind when God is speaking great revelation to him? And to make matters worse, Samuel is growing up in the house of the Lord along with the now blind priest Eli. And that's, that's typical because now even the priesthood can't see. And, and we, got, we got Samuel being a seer, seeing all these visions. But Eli, he has sons of his own. And the Bible tells us that these dudes are jacked up. So jacked up that God, one of his first prophecies that he gives to Samuel to deliver to Eli is this. Hey, Eli, I just want to let you know, God's seen how your sons are robbing from his sacrifices, how they're sleeping with the women who come up here to get counsel and sacrifice to the Lord, and guess what? He's going to kill them. Thus saith the Lord. Look, there's no amount of King James English that slides that bitter pill down into the spirit of somebody. Like, you want to come up here? Like, how many of you want to come up here and get a word? And thus saith the Lord, your children are going to die because they're jacked up because you're a horrible parent. Nobody wants that word. Nobody wants that word. So we see this young man with all of these already built-in insecurities being raised up in a place where the leadership is bad and people who are supposed to be godly, still doing what they're supposed, what, what they want to do. See, in Saul's ascension to leadership wasn't much different. Saul, we find him. God leads him to, to Samuel. Because the Israelites, as Samuel got older, they noticed that Samuel's kids were just as jacked up as Eli's kids were. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that's what they say. They're like, they're like yo, Sam. Your sons don't walk in your ways. One of the amazing things about the, the, the books of First and Second Samuel is how they're so tied into the, the reality of poor parenting. Or actually, I'll even make it spiritual, the lack of good fathering. You need to have someone fathering you in the Lord. So they're like, look, your kids are, 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 are raggedy and messed up too. We don't want them to lead us after you die. Give us a king. And Samuel gets upset. And because of all of the insecurity that's still down deep in the heart of this great leader, the last of Israel's judges, who's the first to actually get them to be long-term, nationally, looking to God, he gets upset because when they say, we don't want your sons to lead us, what he hears through his insecure filter is, we think you suck. We don't want you. And so Samuel does what all of us do when, when, when someone makes us feel bad, goes crying to God. But actually, Samuel puts a twist on it. He's like, God, they don't like you. I mean, none of us have ever put our insecurities on God, right? Not, um, maybe just me, right? But God says, look, Samuel, it's okay. I got a plan. They haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. But I don't want you to feel rejected. But I'm going to raise up somebody who is going to lead along with you in tandem, intention, because I'm leading my people to a better place. And so he sends Saul looking for his dad's donkeys, a head taller than everyone else in his tribe, handsome and good-looking, dutiful, responsible. But he's got insecurities in him too. But he, because even though he looked the part and played the part, the Bible tells us through insinuation that he didn't think that highly of himself. And so God leads this one insecure person to this next insecure person, one to fill the role of governance, 
one, to fill the role of the word and to take their two weaknesses and to combine them together, hopefully to build a strength that would lead his people. But unfortunately, as we'll see here in a minute, that's not what happens. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. It's right before 2 Samuel. If you've hit 3 Samuel, you have the wrong book. Just saying. If your Bible got 3 Samuel, we need to check the pews after service. Amen? But 1 Samuel chapter 15, and the word of the Lord says this. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Now, if I could title this message anything, the title of the message today would be this. Listen to the word of the Lord. Listen to the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, sometimes self-searching and self-evaluation isn't enough. You need to allow the word of God to read you by you reading it and it checking all the areas in your life so that you can be, unlike Saul, free of insecurities when you step into the opportunity to do something great for God. See, Saul didn't allow himself to be read of the word. He lived in his insecurities. And so we see that Samuel says, now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up from Egypt. So Amalek is another nation. It's a nation that Israel first encounters as they're exodusing from um, Egypt to the promised land. Amalek is actually the nation that Israel is fighting uh, when Moses goes up on the mountaintop and, and he is given victory by God as long as he keeps his hands raised, right? Boy, I'd love to say something about worship right there. <laughs> and Aaron and her, when he got tired, they'd hold his arms up and they got a little... You know what I mean? It's okay to, to relax, but keep, keep, keep them up. But that's Amalek. And God remembers how Amalek treated them. And Amalek's interactions with them continued to be poor. And Amalek would oppress them and treat them poorly. And so now God, vengeance is his, says the Lord. God wants to revisit upon Amalek the problems that they put on Israel. And verse 3 says this, Now go and strike Amalek. And devote to destruction all that they have. Not some of what they have. Not 85% of what they have. All of what they have is to be devoted to destruction. Now watch this because this is a really tough word. And especially in our day and age of, of safe spaces and all of these other things, this is one that is really hard for any sane person really to process. Because look at what God says. Do not spare them but kill both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep and camel and donkeys. So apart from the fact that these men have to go in there and kill women and kill children and kill everything, they also have to kill the animals. They have to burn all of the valuables, which is problematic for soldiers because that's how soldiers got paid. 
you got paid off of the spoils of war. So they would have kept the women and the children as slave labor. They would have kept all of the valuables to put in their bank accounts. They'd have kept the, the sheep and all of that other stuff. So God is not only telling them to go in and do a very hard thing. God's telling them to go in and do it for free. And verse 4 says, So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, who are another group of people who live near the Amalekites but aren't a part of the Amalekites, Saul says to them, Go, depart from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all of the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Now that's going to be important later on, so I want you to remember that he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And he devoted to destruction all of the people with the edge of the sword. So we already start to see Saul is not doing exactly what God told him to do. More on that in a moment. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep. So now they're like, you know what? This is, kind of, this is too nice to really kill, right? How many of you got, got, got people in your life that are hoarders? I, I, that, that newspaper's too nice to throw away. I know it's from 1979, but, you know, that, that, that was an important piece. You know, no, I'm the only one? I'm probably the only one. That's okay. How many of you do spring cleaning, and you go through your closet, and there's a shirt you ain't worn three years, but it's just too nice to throw away? Come on, I know I'm talking to some ladies right now. Because, look. Dude's got like three shirts and that little, you know, couple of inches of the closet you give him. I know how it is. Dudes, I'm, I'm for you today. I'm for you today. Got three pairs of pants. That's why when you go to the thrift store, there ain't no men's pants because we wear them till they fall off of our body by disintegration. Just so you know. And ladies, don't throw your man's ripped up stuff away. He just broke it in. Leave it be. But they kept the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatted calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, though, they devoted to destruction. Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. See, I believe what had happened here was that Samuel, in his insecurities, once he was finally willing to accept Saul, now developed some kind of a codependent relationship with Saul. And because Saul was operating in king with his stamp of approval, any failure or fault on the part of Saul would naturally reflect as a failure and fault on the part of Samuel. And so Samuel, to a certain degree, is still operating out of these insecurities that he has. And so he cries all night, not because he cares about Saul, but because he's still struggling with caring about himself too much. And verse 12, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up for a monument for himself, 
and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Side note, it's funny how people who think little of themselves go out of their way to big, build, big monuments of how good they are. Got a real fly Facebook page. YOLO, best life. Everything's good. Then you read their news feed. Oh, it's horrible. No one cares about me. See, God wants to correct the insecurities in our lives by helping us get to a place where he is the only security we need or have. Sometimes that's why God will rip things out of your hands. Because you have become so attached to them, because you've become so identified by them, that God just wants to see if you really care about him more than you care about that stuff. If you really see yourself in him more than you see yourself in your car or in your house, or in your degrees, or in how perfect your kids are. I know they're wiping boogers under the bed. I don't even need a prophetic word. I know they got problems. My son uses this much toilet paper for each wipe. He's like this big. I said, son, I can't afford all that toilet paper. I said, I said your dad only needs two squares. Figure out a way to make it work. Our kids ain't perfect. But that's what makes them perfect. That's what makes them perfect. That's what makes them unique. But God wants us to find our uniqueness in him. See, that's why 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, but 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the strength of Christ may rest on me because in my weakness his strength is made perfect. When we surrender our insecurities to God and find our security in him, we don't find ourselves crying ourselves to sleep because of what someone that we stamped with approval did. Our children's sin, or it's not necessarily our fault. And our parents' sin doesn't define who we are. That's just for free. So Saul went down, he built a monument And in verse 13, it says, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. That sentence doesn't even read right. What are you saying, Saul? See, it's funny when people that aren't really spiritual, and they try to sound spiritual, they just say some, Blessed be to you, the Lord, that you are. Like, just just nonsensical. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Really? Really? Is that so? Let's see. Verse 14, and Samuel said, huh, so you, you, you did what God told you to do, right? You listened to the words of the Lord? Well, then what is all this bleeding of sheep and lowing of cattle that I hear in my ear? See, because I distinctly remember when God spoke to me to speak to you that he told you, see, it's, Samuel gets a little bit of twitch in his neck, that he told you to kill everything, the cattle, the sheep. Why are you out at the club with that bougie? Oh, I'm sorry, that's a whole different sermon. Why do I hear things making noise that should be dead? Verse 15, Saul said, they. Who who was talking about me? They. Who told you you could, who, who said that was a good idea? Well, they. Isn't it funny how they instantly becomes the reason why we do dumb stuff or think stupid things? Saul says, he says, well, the reason this happened was because they have brought them from the Amalekites. You're their leader, Saul. Be a man. Be a man. They have brought them for the Amalekites, for the people, not me, the the people. You know, it was the people. It was the woman you put me here with, God. 
The people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen. And, and I mean, they did it because they were going to sacrifice it to God. So, I mean, there was a good reason we didn't obey, right? The, 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 the reason why I lied on my tax return was so that I could give a bigger tithe. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, that, that, that's why it was. Yeah. So we were going to sacrifice it to the Lord. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Just stop. Just stop, knucklehead. Just stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Isn't it funny how God already knows that you're going to do something stupid before you do something stupid? That's really cool because you know what that means? He still loved you. He knew you were going to do something dumb. That's why when Jeremiah 33.3 says that he has loved us with an everlasting love, right? That's what it says. And many of us, we hear something like that, and that means that God's love for me never ends. Well, here's one of the funny things uh, just, just by definition about everlasting. If it's something that has no end, by definition it has no beginning. That means God has always loved us because God is love. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but I just wanted to share that because some of us may have done or about to do some stupid things today, but, but, but God has already spoke to someone or us about it last night. But he still loves us anyway. It's the kindness of God that leads men to repentance, not his judgment. And so Samuel said, speak, in verse 17, and Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, I love how God can call out our, our issues. You know, don't hide behind your issues. They're too small. They're too small to hide the real you. They may feel real big to you right now, but they're too small to hide the real you. Don't hide behind them. Let God call you out from behind. See, sometimes we just don't like being called out. And we feel like, God, why are you calling me out in front of all these people? He's like, because I'm calling you out of that mess. Come out of that mess. That's not you. That's not the best you. That's below you. Come out. Come out. Lazarus, come out. Take the grave clothes off of him. He's alive. He's not dead. Come out. He says, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? So he chin checks him. He's like, bro, I don't want to hear about they. Don't tell me about they. Don't tell me about how if your wife didn't get you angry, you wouldn't have punched a hole in the wall. Or don't tell me about how if your husband would have just loved you more, you wouldn't have started that, that, that online thing. Don't tell me about that. God's made you for more than that. You're bigger than that. He says, aren't you the head of all the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He anointed you to lead these people. He anointed you to not let these people do something stupid. And he definitely anointed you so that other people wouldn't influence you to do something dumb. Wow, that'll preach. Verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and devote the destruction, the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Mm. We'll start believing our own lies. It's easy. I obeyed the voice of the Lord. No, you did not. No, you did not. That's why we're having this conversation. Any parents ever had a conversation like that with their kids? I did what you told me to do. No, you did not. That's why we're talking right now. 
Because if you did what you were supposed to do, we'd be at Dairy Queen having ice cream, celebrating what you did right. But right now, you did not do what, 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 what. He said, I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. Oh, it's the people again. The sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said this, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. God don't care about what you can do for him if you can't obey him. God don't care about how skillful you are, how anointed you are. If you don't obey completely the voice of the Lord, then he says it right here, that your rebellion, that your disobedience is as the sin of divination and witchcraft. You might as well be a satanic uh, Wiccan who conjures up goat demons if you're going to disobey God. That's what he's equating it to here. He says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption. (laughs) What a word there is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the people, the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. I'm going to ask if the worship team would get ready and we'll close this out. Because there's five things that I want us to take away to help us today as we learn, no matter how old we are, we're still children in the sight of the Lord. And we're maturing and learning to live in this tension of of obeying the voice of the Lord and coming under the Lord's governance and discipline. But as we see what happened here Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do, and God tore the kingdom from him. I want, I want to say something here. This, is, this isn't one of the takeaways, but I want, I want to point out the fact that, 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 that tearing is a very violent and difficult thing. And it's not because Saul held it so closely. It's because God wants us, the reader, to get how hurtful it was for him to take it from Saul. See, because God didn't reject Saul. He rejected Saul as king. He deeply loved Saul. And maybe you're here today and you feel like God has torn things away from you. That doesn't mean he doesn't love you. 
Every action has a consequence. Every seed has a harvest. And sometimes the harvest of the seed that we sow to ourself and to our flesh or the seed that we sow out of our failings and our failures and our iniquities and our insecurities, it bears forth a harvest. And that harvest is God tearing something from us. But there are also times where God will rip something away from us. And this is what I believe he did here to Saul. He didn't take the kingdom from Saul just as a punishment. He took the kingdom from Saul because he understood that the lack of character inside of Saul would have allowed Saul to be crushed by the weight of leadership if he allowed him to go on it in it any longer. See, a chocolate Easter bunny, you know, the big ones, the giant one in the box, they're not the best Easter candy. Everybody knows that that's the Reese peanut butter egg. Those things are endued with resurrection power. But that bunny, it's the biggest and it's the best looking. And I don't know if you're like me, but I would wake up in the morning and I knew that there was resurrection power in them eggs. But that bunny was so big and looked so good. And I got my church clothes on. And even though I knew that there was power, power, wonder-working power in those Reese peanut butter eggs, I went for the bunny. Some of you are thinking veggie tails right now, aren't you? Yep. Come back with me. And I'd grab that bunny and I'd rip it out of the plastic and I'd, I'd pluck that disgusting confectionery eye off of it. And, and every year I'd still try to eat that thing knowing that it was from the pit of hell. It's like the sugar that was like stuck on the bottom of the candy maker's table and he just scraped it off like Buddy the Elf and stuck it on that rabbit. And I grabbed that rabbit. And you go for the ears. You don't go for the butt. No one bites the butt first. You save the butt for last. You grab and you go for the ears. and you. But then it would happen. The same thing that would happen every year. The same thing that would catch me a whooping from my mom. Not because I ate the candy. But because I got the candy on my church clothes. Because you see, when you, when you bit into that big bunny that was real big looked real good and awesome you found something out the bunny was hollow and because the bunny was hollow you got more than you bargained for with the bite because you just didn't get the piece that you bit in your mouth you got half of the rest of the bunny crumbled into your lap on your pleated plaid church pants see and there's a principle here which is one of the reasons why I think he took the kingdom from Saul, because you know what? Saul was that bunny. And a lot of times, we're that bunny. Because even though we look real good on the outside, even though we look big and we stand out amongst the wonderful peanut butter eggs that have much more power than we could ever have, but we just look so much bigger and better, the moment that we're picked up, to be used for what we're meant to be used for, we fall apart because there's nothing on the inside. And God graciously took this kingdom from a man who was hollow because of his insecurities 
so that the weight of leadership wouldn't crush him. And Saul, even though he's sad about the kingdom, he still wants to look good in front of the people. So he begs Samuel. He says, Samuel, come out, man. I need you, the prophetic word, to co-sign my bad leadership. Sure, cool. God took the kingdom great. I didn't want it in the first place. I don't care. But I just want to look good in front of the people. You see, and the prophetic doesn't exist to make you look good in front of the people. The prophetic exists to make God look good in front of you. But Samuel, because of his insecurities, he goes out, co-signs it, and keeps it moving. So what are the takeaways for us today? Here's number one. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Let me say it again. 98% obedience is still 100% disobedience. Why? Because God isn't looking for 98% of you. He died for all of you. And when we only give God a portion, when we only give God a percentage, when we only give God obedience to the level that we want to give it, we're operating in the same sin of divination and witchcraft because we're operating in disobedience because partial obedience is complete disobedience. There's a reason why God said what he said to do and why he said to do it the way he said to do it. It's not for us to understand. It's us for us to do. What's that old poem say? It's not for us to reason why. It's just for us to do and die. See, God isn't asking for counsel. He's not asking for our advice. God, more often than not, is telling. And even when he's asking, he's still subtly telling. Who told you you were naked? Elijah, what are you doing here? See, we have a responsibility to obey 100% of the word of the Lord. Because if we don't, then we're no better than the half-hearted kamikaze. Back in World War II, the Empire of Japan, who was one of the forces that we fought, they had a military tactic called the kamikaze pilot. And his job was to get in a plane loaded with munitions and fly that plane with himself in it into the designated target. It was a suicide mission. He was a suicide bomber. And the kamikaze pilot, his greatest honor was to get in his plane, wave goodbye to his comrades, and go and complete his mission. But there was one day where one kamikaze was unable to fully get to the battleship that he was supposed to fly in into. And before he knew it, he's locked in a dogfight with allied airplanes. And he begins to start shooting with the planes. And he's good at it. He gets one. Then he gets another. Before long, there's three. 
And by the time it's all said and done, and he's heading back to his Japanese aircraft carrier, he has downed five American planes, not a bad day's work, for a fighter pilot. But see, he wasn't a fighter pilot. He was a kamikaze pilot. And so as he landed on that Japanese aircraft carrier, he wasn't met with celebration or congratulation. He was met with the stern look of the admiral of the fleet clutching his saber, his katana, shooting him a glance as if to say, what the are you doing here? See, because the kamikaze's pilot's job wasn't to go and engage the enemy in a dogfight in the air and shoot down enemy pilots. His job was to go and to fly into a specific battleship. His job was to not come back. And because the kamikaze didn't finish his task, the same battleship he was supposed to fly into ended up being the battleship that sunk the aircraft carrier he was on. What's the point? Partial obedience is complete disobedience. And you'll pay for it in the end. Number two, don't be self-centered. Be word-centered. Saul's unwillingness to completely obey what God told him to do showed that he cared more about what he thought and what his opinions and what he wanted to do than what God said to do. See, there's a passage in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, that says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual. They have divine power for the tearing down of strongholds. And it says something that's very important, especially for this day and age of look at me. I'm the master of my own domain. I'm the captain of my own fate. I'm the boss. I'm the king. It says, for we demolish every argument and every lofty opinion that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. What's Paul saying? Not just that spiritual warfare has the power to tear these things down, but there are often times, many times in our own lives, where our ideas and our lofty opinions of who we think God is and what we think God should do and where we think we should be and what position we think we should have and all of these other things set themselves up against the knowledge of Christ in our lives and it requires spiritual warfare to tear them down. Why? Because when we live according to our own opinion, we're self-centered instead of word centered. Number three, don't be people focused. Be God focused instead. Stop caring about who comments on your stuff. Stop worrying about how good or how many takes you had to get to get the perfect picture for Insta. Stop worrying so much about what the news says or your neighbor says or your coworker says or anyone says until you fully care about first what God says. See, Saul allowed himself to fall victim to bad leadership because he cared more about what the people thought than what God said. And we can't allow ourselves to do the same. Number four, what you don't heed today will hurt tomorrow. What you don't take and handle today, what you don't kill today will hurt tomorrow. I told you to remember Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, if you read the rest of the passage, you'll see that 
Samuel, because Saul refused to kill Agag and the best of the stuff, Samuel took that job upon himself. But there was a young man, a relative of Agag, who not only saw how Israel came in and killed all of his people, but saw firsthand how Samuel butchered his relative, the king, Agag. And he ran off and he hid and he met a young lady and they had kids and their kids had kids and their kids' kids had kids and on and on and on for centuries until hundreds of years later in the nation of Persia there was a man named Haman the Agathite who had remembered as it had been passed down to him from generation to generation how Israel butchered his people. And now Haman the Agathite was no longer like his long-lost ancestor, a scared person running for their lives. Haman the Agathite had a high position in the kingdom of Persia. And during that time, Jews and Israelites lived in Persia. And he said, now's my chance. And he got the king to put out an edict to kill all the Jews. And luckily for us, there was a man named Mordecai who had a niece named Esther who said, you need to do this, but if you don't, God will raise someone else up. But you were made for such a time as this. You say, well, what's the point? The thing that Saul didn't kill that day almost wiped the nation out hundreds of years later. The thing that God is telling you to put to death here today could be the thing that wipes your family out if you let it. But what you don't heed today will hurt tomorrow. And the last thing is this. God refuses to live in any way subjective to our human frailty and failing. God does not allow himself to be subject to our weaknesses and our imperfections. Look at me, look with me if you will. Verse number 11. The Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king. And so he removed the kingdom from Saul because God regretted making Saul king. But then when you look in verse 29, you see something that's significant that if you're not careful, you'll think is contradictory. Because in verse 29, when Samuel is rebuking Saul, he says, the Lord, the glory of Israel, will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Some of your translations say, for he is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. When you say, well, what's the point? Verse 11 says God regrets. Verse 29, Samuel said God doesn't regret. What's the point? Here's it. God will not change his nature and character to appease or to accommodate your failings or frailties. He said, I'm not in the regret in business. So I'm going to remove the kingdom from him because I don't regret. He said, I'm not going to let this guy Make me act out of my character. You say, wow, that sounds really harsh. But I want to put a gospel spin on it and I want to leave you with this. 
the Bible tells us that God is righteous, that God is holy, that God is jealous, and that God has wrath. And for those who do not accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, for those who do not accept the free gift of God, irregardless of what you think or what your lofty opinion is or what other people say, if you don't repent of your sin and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by faith, you will be eternally damned in hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the fire is not quenched and the worm never dies, where there is darkness and wailing, and you will be there absent from the presence of the Lord forever. But see, God, that's not his first action. Because he is righteous, and he is holy, and he is jealous, and he has wrath. But all of those things are rooted in the fact that God is love. And see, maybe you're here today and you're struggling with seeing how tearing the kingdom away from a guy, a frail guy, a weak guy, an insecure guy who really didn't have a shot, that that just makes God seem mean. No, we've already illustrated how God lovingly did that. But, but maybe you're here today struggling with how, how could God kill women? Look, God is love. And because he's love, and because he's righteous, and because he's holy, and because he's jealous, God has to deal with sin in sinful flesh, but he has to do it without changing the nature and character of his love because God doesn't change. And so what does he do? He sends himself, his son, to live as us and to die for us and to rise again so that he doesn't have to change his nature in dealing with sin and so that he doesn't have to change his nature as love because God doesn't change his nature and character in response to our frailties. He changes our frailties by changing our nature and character by making us born again in Jesus Christ. And so maybe you're here today and you're like Saul, you've messed up. You've allowed other people to influence you more than the word of the Lord influences you. You've allowed your own ideas and your own thoughts and opinions to set themselves up against the ideas, thoughts, and opinions of Jesus Christ himself. Maybe you're here today and 90% of your bad behavior is rooted in some kind of insecurity or deep-seated wound or some kind of codependency because of how you were brought up or where you lived or things that you did. Maybe you're here today and you're just struggling to get that extra 2% of obedience so that you can be 100% obedient instead of 98% obedient, which is full disobedience. Whoever you are today, I want, I want you to hear me today. God will not change, but he will change you. And if you're here today and you struggle in any area of life, any facet, maybe you're here today and you've been waiting for God to change to do what you want him to do. I hate to tell you, that bus ain't coming. 
But I can tell you a bus that arrived 2,000 years ago in a manger in, in Bethlehem, born poorer than anybody in this room, lost his daddy at a young age, had to grow up in a family that rejected him because they all knew that his mama was pregnant before she was married, was rejected by his brothers, was rejected by his people, was rejected by you and me, but he still allowed himself to be held down and beaten. He still allowed himself. He allowed himself. He allowed arms that he created, then vines and whips from elements that he spoke into existence to rip the flesh off of his body. He allowed beings he spoke into existence to stretch his arms on a cross and drive nail from ore that he spoke into the ground and lift him up on a tree that he spoke into being. He allowed all of that to happen because he was not going to change for you, but he came so that you could change for him and be forever changed and have that place where that insecurity doesn't have a grip on you anymore. Have that place where even if you get it wrong, you're still the righteousness of God. For he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And even if you're here today and you're struggling in a pit of filthy, pig pen, sty infested sin, God still loves you as much today as he did the day he stretched himself on the cross, as he did the day you came into this sinful existence. He loves you as much today, for the Lord has loved us with an everlasting love, and he may not change, but he says if you'll just give me a shot, I just might change you and rather than tearing a kingdom away from me I will confer a kingdom onto you and if you're here today and you want to get right with God I'm not just saying praying a nice little prayer but repenting turning away from your insecurity your fear, your doubt, your own opinions turning away from what other people say just turning to him sitting in his presence and allowing him to change you from the inside out. If, if you're here today and you would like to participate in that, I, I would gladly participate in it with you and I'm going to open up these altars and you can just find a place. Or if you'd like specific prayer, I'm, I'm going to post up over here in the corner and we can pray, but, but here's, here's the thing that I really want to get. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Look, there's still time to get signed up for the baptism thing, but you can't get baptized until you receive Jesus, until you repent of your sins, until you acknowledge that you were made for more than what you're living for right now. And if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm not going to make you raise your hand up or make you come forward. We can do that another day. You can just meet me over on the corner and say, Hey, John, can you tell me a little bit more about Jesus? Or John, I, I just like to i just like to have Jesus. If that's you, I'm going to invite you to come up. These altars are open. Because God loves you no matter what.